God has been planning, he's been promising, he's been preparing, and now it's time for him to put it all into action. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown, and thank you for listening to episode 27. We are especially excited about today's episode because it's the highlight of everything we've been working toward this year on this podcast. Jeff and I have been moving through the Bible at breakneck speed. We've been trying to get an overview of the different sections of the Bible and asking, how do these books fit into the whole story of the Bible? And so we've arrived at the four books that open up the New Testament, the Gospels. Remember, and we've been saying this and emphasizing this since the book of Genesis, that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, not to give anything away, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John show that this plan is fulfilled. And God has been planning, he's been promising, he's been preparing, and now it's time for him to put it all into action. We won't do our regular historical review here, since we want to spend more time actually talking about the Gospels. If you want to review, we encourage you to listen to past episodes. What we're doing today is focusing on each of the Gospels individually. We have four accounts of Jesus' life, not just one. And that fact alone should show us how important Jesus is to the whole story of the Bible. Each of the Gospels presents a unique and equally true perspective of who Jesus is. And that's the question for today. What do each of the four Gospels say about Jesus? So let's dive in. Let's get started. Jeff, what does the book of Matthew say about Jesus? For each of the Gospels, we're going to use the formula or the phrase, Jesus is, and fill in the blank. So for the book of Matthew, we're saying Jesus is king. Matthew opens his Gospel by establishing this fact and beginning with the genealogy of Jesus that proves that he is from the line of Abraham and the line of David. As we think about him being from the line of David, we should be immediately calling into our minds 2 Samuel 7 type of language and that covenant that God has made with David. This appears to point to a particular Jewish flavor in Matthew as he intends for his audience to be able to digest as they are coming to understand Jesus is the Christ. There's lots of references to Old Testament scripture, fulfillments of prophecy, quotes from the prophets. Now, obviously, each of the Gospels are going to have some of that. Particularly in Matthew, though, we see how Matthew will use phrases either as Jesus speaks about himself or as Jesus in his actions is doing things to fulfill the words of the prophets. Or we think about how he is going to fulfill the scriptures, or as he will say, it is written. So there is major Old Testament background here in this particular book. And we see that Jesus is king as he proclaims his message based around that fact that he's talking about his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. As he proclaims that gospel of the kingdom there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, again we see the emphasis as Jesus is talking about the kingdom and Matthew bringing that out in this particular gospel. The Sermon on the Mount 
that Jesus preaches is a lesson on how to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we've heard that language being used, not necessarily in the sermon itself, but about what Jesus says in that sermon. And we think about in certain sections of Matthew, like in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses these kingdom parables. He'll often say the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed or a pearl of great value or a net of fish or something like that. He uses these illustrations to show something about the kingdom of heaven. And there's also a great particular emphasis on the teaching of Jesus in this particular book. Chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 53, chapter 19, verse 1, chapter 26, verse 1, are all sections that end with, as he finished these sayings, we're moving into a new section of Jesus's ministry and teaching. Some people think that Matthew purposely arranged this gospel in this way, having these sections to be these dividers. Some of those verses I mentioned a second ago, maybe you can rewind and catch those references again and look for those to see that maybe as Matthew has broken this book up into some of these five sections of teachings to reflect or parallel the five books of the Torah. And then that makes sense to me that Jesus is being shown as a greater Moses. He's shown as a greater prophet, a greater teacher of the law and of a lawgiver as he's bringing the true teaching of the kingdom of God. So Jesus really has, as king, all authority. The gospel closes in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through verse 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority as he has done his Father's work. Matthew truly is emphasizing that Jesus is king. Now, that's not to say that Jesus isn't king in Mark or Luke or John as well, Mm -hmm. but we're just trying to show that there are some particular flavors that are brought out in each of these Gospels. So hopefully, as you'll think about the next time you read through Matthew, you'll notice some of those things about the kingdom, about Jesus being king, the teachings of Jesus, and the emphasis on the kingdom itself. But that moves us then into Mark. Emerson, what do we see about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, in in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is presented as the suffering servant. So it's almost like you get the flip side from Matthew. Matthew emphasizes Jesus's authority, also his suffering, as you said. But Mark more emphasizes that he is the suffering servant. And so Mark's opening statement is plain and simple. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's uh, verse one of the book. And so Mark's purpose is to just lay out for us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and really unpack what that means. And so from this point, he launches into a quick-paced and action-packed presentation of of Jesus's ministry. You know, he doesn't spend any time talking about John the Baptist's birth or Jesus's birth. He just introduces Jesus and he says, "Let's go. Strap your seatbelts on." <laughs> Let's get moving. Mark is the gospel of action. A lot of times you'll see his paragraphs are short. He says, and immediately Jesus did this. And just the facts, Jesus did this. And immediately he did something else. And immediately and immediately. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get the portrait of Jesus's actions. If Matthew is the gospel of Jesus's teachings or his words, 
then Mark is the gospel of Jesus's works. And so everywhere that Jesus goes, his action, his works, raise the question, who is this man? In chapter 2, verse 7, you see the Jewish leaders asking that question when Jesus says to the lame man, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, they're like, who, who is this guy who is <laughs> claiming to forgive sins? The disciples ask who he is. In chapter 4, Jesus calms the sea, and the disciples in the boat, they say, who is this that can, you know, even the storm obeys him? The crowds ask that question in chapter 6. Where did Jesus get all these wonderful teachings? Isn't he the carpenter's son? His brothers and sisters are right here. Who is Jesus? And they're all asking that same question. You know, he must be someone with authority and power and might. Well, in chapter 8, Jesus kind of turns the table and he asks his disciples that very question, point blank. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. And so this is really the turning point in the gospel of Mark, because it's not until this point that we see Jesus actually explaining for himself who he is. And after this point, Mark just begins to be filled with these unexpected plot twists. We're, we're getting this buildup of seeing Jesus as someone great, someone with authority, someone who performs miracles, you know, has authority over the sea, the demons. But then in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus begins to predict his rejection and his suffering and his death. It says, and he began to teach them, this is chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus predicts this three times, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse 32. And in the other Gospels, Jesus also makes the same predictions but it's more explicit in the Gospel of Mark. And more than the other Gospels, Mark emphasizes how the disciples just didn't get it. For example, right after he makes this first prediction in chapter 8, Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Lord, this will never happen to you. Mm -hmm. Because nobody in those days expected the Christ to say this. And Jesus explains the why of his suffering. After one of his predictions in chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant, particularly of Isaiah's prophecies. In our episode on the prophets, we spent a little bit of time talking about Isaiah chapter 53 and how Isaiah focuses on this person that would come who would give his life for the sins of others, that he would be pierced and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we would be healed. Upon him, our sins would fall. Mark says this person is Jesus. And throughout the gospel, especially towards the end of the gospel, we see those predictions coming true. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he's rejected. He dies by crucifixion and then rises from the dead. And so, What's most surprising is not just that Jesus predicts his sufferings, and that's not what was expected, but after each of Jesus's predictions of what's going to happen to him, he then calls his disciples to follow and suffer with him. So in chapter 8, verse 34, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. This is right after Jesus has said, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to do the same thing. So for us to follow the suffering servant, we too must become suffering servants by denying our own will and our wishes and follow in his suffering, follow in his footsteps uh, to become suffering servants on his behalf. So, you know, Mark presents this portrait that's surprising, that's unexpected. Jesus is the suffering servant, and are we willing to follow in his footsteps? So as we move into the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus is Savior. Similar to Matthew, Luke begins this Gospel close to the beginning, at least, with a genealogy. He begins with the birth story, actually, of John the Baptist, as well as paralleling the birth story of Jesus, both of these being miraculous births in a sense of, with John the Baptist, his mother is way beyond childbearing years. With with Mary, Jesus' mother, she's a virgin still, but is going to have a child. But as we think about this genealogy, we'll come back to it towards the end of our discussion of Luke in just a moment. Luke is writing to or we might say for his friend Theophilus, in order as it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants to write a gospel so that Theophilus will know that all that he's heard about Jesus, all that he's been taught about Jesus, is going to be affirmed as true and actual fact that Theophilus has heard. And so Luke gathers eyewitness accounts. He gathers testimony from people who have seen Jesus, who have walked with Jesus, who can say that this actually happened. Luke is not just making up stories on his own about what he thinks would be great for Jesus, but Luke makes the point that he's looking to you know, sources to build his case that Jesus has actually done this, again, that there can be certainty about the things that Theophilus has heard about Christ. And so Luke writes from a very strong historical background. One of the things we notice in chapter 3 is that chapter begins in verse 1 and verse 2 are these lists of these Roman names and these Jewish names of people who are in control or in power at the time politically, or even as we'll get into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, we're going to see some similar things where Luke writes about who are these people who are in control and in power. Where one evidence people will say about the reliability of the Bible as you look at that and those folks who were in power in that day of time, if they really wanted to squash Christianity, could have just spoken to them and said, well, that didn't happen. I, right. I was in charge, and, and that didn't happen while I was in charge. But we don't see things like that happening. And so that's something that I rely on or I see as evidence for reliability of the Scriptures itself. Getting into the message of Luke, though, and seeing how Jesus is Savior, we start to notice there's a lot of unique material in Luke particularly in the middle section around chapter 9 through chapter 18, there are lots of unique parables that are told nowhere else. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the prodigal son, the shrewd servant, and other parables, probably that we're all familiar with, but we realize actually aren't in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark. But we see an emphasis as Jesus is teaching about caring and helping and saving Gentiles, particularly the poor, and the needy. Now, Jesus is obviously first and foremost to proclaim his message to the Jews. We see him talk about that in other gospel accounts. But here in the book of Luke, we're seeing Gentile flavors. I like using that word flavors as this idea of we're getting hints of that at times. It may not necessarily be the full-on front 
of it, but it's mixed with the rest of the content of the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 16 through verse 19, we have this scene where Jesus is in a synagogue with Jews, and he's asked to read from the scroll of Isaiah. So he reads this section and talks about how he is here to proclaim good news to the poor and the needy and the blind and the lame and help those who are captive to bring freedom to them. He sits down and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today, to say that I'm the guy who's going to bring that that salvation, the help, the good news to those poor and needy type of people. And really, that leads to the great statement in chapter 19 and verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's where we get the idea of Luke really emphasizing Jesus as Savior, and Jesus being Savior for the whole world. In Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, some of my favorite passages from Luke, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus has come to help those who are sinners, those who are guilty of sin, stuck in their sin, facing the problem of sin, and saying, I'm going to help you with this problem and help you out of this problem as your Savior. And even in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' genealogy is traced back through Luke, not just to David, not just to Abraham, but goes all the way back to Adam. And the way that that closes out in that chapter talks about how this is the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the one who's going to save all of mankind. We see that point being brought out there by being the son of Adam. Yeah, I love how you point that out because as we're trying to emphasize the whole story of the Bible, Luke kind of does that right in that genealogy, doesn't he? Because he goes Mm -hmm. all the way back to Adam, and as he's emphasizing Christ as the Savior, he's the Savior of the problem that started way back with Adam. Whenever he sinned, he and his wife sinned against God. And so, yeah, just really compact right there in that genealogy, Jesus is the answer to the problem. Absolutely. And that genealogy answers so many things about what was expected of the Messiah. He needs to come from the line of David. He needs to come from the line of Abraham. He needs to be the one who's going to overcome the serpent and the seed of the serpent by being the seed of the woman. All of that is fulfilled and talked about really there in Luke's genealogy. So we see from the gospel so far, Jesus is king. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is Savior. Let's finally talk about the Gospel of John. So John tells us that Jesus is God. And if you've read the Gospel of John before, you know that it's very different from the other three. It's constructed differently. There are fewer miracles. There's actually no parables in the Gospel of John. And John is more symbolic. It's more reflective. And and John actually tells us at the end of the Gospel, this is why he's writing this. He says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so there's a lot of things we could talk about with John's purpose statement here, but One of the things that stands out is he talks about signs. Mm -hmm. John is the gospel of signs, which are, uh, he never calls Jesus's miracles miracles. Most often he calls them signs because they are events that point to who Jesus is, kind of like a street sign would point to, you know, the, the way that you need to go to the store or to a particular location. The signs point us to the way. Jesus actually calls himself the way. 
and the truth and the life. And so John has carefully selected seven of these miracles or signs to focus on and reflect about who Jesus is. So like in the feeding of the 5,000, which is one of the miracles we see, or actually the only miracle that we see all four of the Gospels recording, mm-hmm. after that, Jesus teaches, I am the bread of life. He teaches other I am statements of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection, the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And so all of these are, are things that we can relate to on some level that this is a presentation of who Jesus is. We need him. And so John is showing us Jesus' teaching, his signs, for us to contemplate and meditate on who Jesus is because what he says to us, that to believe and follow Jesus as God, that's the key to eternal life. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's really no getting around what John says about Jesus' deity here. Mm-hmm. In chapter 5, verse 18, it says, that in response to what Jesus was teaching, for this reason the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And not only did Jesus say, I am the bread of life, at least one time he just says, I am. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In chapter 8, verse 58, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it's almost like, we're left hanging, waiting for Jesus to finish the sentence. Jesus, you are what? <laughs> but he's, he's done. I, I, you know, he is basically asserting that he is the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush who called himself, I am who I am. So Jesus is God. And think about the, cl- the shockingness of that claim. Think about how remarkable that claim is. If Jesus is claiming to be God, it is blasphemous if it's not true but it's life-altering if it is true. And so at the climax of the story, going back to John chapter 20, Jesus has already died, he's resurrected, and all of the disciples have seen Jesus risen again except for Thomas. And of course, we know Thomas is the doubting one. And we see him saying, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I touch Jesus, unless I see him for myself. When he actually does, when Thomas sees and touches Jesus' resurrected body, he makes this bold confession, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. So John is writing these signs, these messages of Jesus for those of us who did not see Jesus with our own eyes. But we can read what is written and we can believe like Thomas did. John wants us to make the same confession that Thomas made. He is my Lord, and he is my God, and I want to follow him because of who he is. So John presents us with Jesus as being God. One thing that I want to go back to, Jeff, you were talking earlier about how there are four Gospels and how they kind of overlap with one another. You know, it's really interesting to to see the different perspectives in the Gospels, and one of the most helpful illustrations that I've run across to kind of emphasize that is if you were look if you're looking at four different paintings of say Mount Everest mm-hmm. you know each 
artist is going to show something different about it. They're going to have a different medium. Maybe one's going to be in watercolor, maybe one in pencil. They're going to each have some different style of what Mount Everest looks like. But all four portraits are true because mm-hmm. they're showing the same subject. And that's true of the Gospels. Each four gospel, each of the four Gospels has a different perspective, a different presentation or, or perspective, but they're all equally true of who Jesus is. That's right. Maybe grabbing your Mount Everest analogy there, let's talk about the high point of each of the Gospels. You may have noticed that as we've talked about each of the Gospels today, we haven't really talked about the big point of the whole story. I mean, usually we've been doing these episodes, here's maybe a section, and we'll make a whole story connection. The whole story connection is kind of each gospel itself is Mm -hmm. its whole story connection. But we want to emphasize here the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's been our key statement throughout these episodes. Running together, we've tried to talk about how this whole story is threaded together by the fact that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through those events, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. doesn't necessarily mean we're going to spend another 27 minutes on just those three things, but we want to at least highlight those facts that it's here, it's at this moment that the gospel writers spend some time, a large section of each of their gospels, focusing on just maybe that final week or even the final days or hours of Jesus's life as he goes through those moments. We see the agony. We see the events leading up to it as his disciples are still wrestling and confused with what's about to happen. We see the pain that he goes through. We see him talking about how he has finished the work of God by making sure that he is the sacrifice or that he is the sacrifice. Ultimately, being victorious through the resurrection and then ascending to heaven And then coming to find that this is really God fulfilling that plan, but this is still just the start of all of that as well. All Mm -hmm. that to say that as each of these writers talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and referencing them at least a little bit, the authority of Jesus, something like that, we come to appreciate how important it is to the whole story, that each of them slow down, that they bring us into these moments. They go through these trials to show us what Jesus is going through, to show us that Jesus truly is fulfilling things like the suffering servant description of Isaiah 53. He truly is the Lamb of God, and it is his blood that is shed, that he really does die. But then most importantly, like you mentioned with Thomas a second ago, that we are going to affirm that he really is our Lord and our God. It'd be difficult to not just read each gospel accounts right now. And so in these just few minutes here, as we're talking about these things, we just want to emphasize the fact that this is the moment, the crucifixion, yeah. the resurrection, the ascension. This is what we've been building towards, and everything after this is building off of what God has done in these moments of these Gospels as these Gospel writers write them for us. Yeah, when you look at the Gospels kind of with a big picture, proportionally speaking, they spend much more time focusing on the last week of Jesus's life than they do any other period in his life. And, you know, that's by design Mm -hmm. because it, it, this is what it's all about. It's about not only the last week of Jesus's life, but the three days when, you know, beginning with Jesus's trial and his arrest and his death, 
And when you read about his death, you, you read about all of these remarkable events that happen. The sky is darkened. The curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even one of the Gospels mentions that there was an earthquake at the moment when, when uh, Jesus died. And dead people and, start coming out of graves and tombs. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, apparently something is happening that you know, God is working through this and God is getting our attention. This is what all of human history has built up to, all of God's plan. And you know, it's, it's kind of interesting when you look at how, how we date our calendar. It's centered around Jesus, right? you know, give or take a few years when Jesus was born. And I don't think that that's, you know, just accident, but I think people have recognized that that this is the important moment of all of human history. This is life-changing, what Jesus has done. That's right. So as we think about our to-be-continued section, I mean, if we've reached the climax of the story, what else is there to talk about? Well, quite literally, Acts 1-1 is a specific sequel to the Gospel of Luke and to the Gospels really as a whole, as we see that Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, but then it's a, well, now what? There's still more to do. There's still more to see about how are Jesus' followers going to serve him, going to be part of his kingdom? How is his message of salvation, of sins for all people going to spread? So in our next whole story episode, we'll talk more about that in the book of Acts, as we'll see the message of salvation for all nations being proclaimed. We see it being spread throughout all nations. As we see that Jesus's work here on this earth as described in the Gospels is just the start of God's plan put into action. That plan that God had from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. So as we end with our challenge today, we want to encourage you to pick your favorite gospel. It doesn't matter which one it is, and read the account of the crucifixion and resurrection. And think about, as you're reading those chapters, that all of this happens within the matter of three days. And and why is it that these are the three most important days in all of human history? And more than that, think about how your life is going to be different because of this. My my favorite gospel right now is is John. So I'm going to read the crucifixion account in the Gospel of John and think about how does this change my life? What happened 2000 years ago with Jesus and why does this change and how does this change the way that I live today? That's our challenge to you today. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. On our next episode, we'll be taking just a short break here towards the end of our whole story series as we have Brother Warren Berkeley on to help us consider some things about Bible study. Very soon as we wrap up this whole story series, we'll be getting back into some more talking about the inductive method of Bible study and talking about how to maybe use that practically in certain books. We want to have Brother Warren help us particularly talk about observation and application. We know you'll enjoy listening to him on next week's episode. Until next time, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.
<coughs> I had to get that out. I almost made it, but I, I couldn't quite do it. <laughs> As he ascends to heaven.